open your Bibles back up to Numbers. Open your Bibles back up to Numbers. We're going to be in chapter 13. We took a short break last week as we celebrated the resurrection of Christ and what a celebration it was. What an amazing moment in our calendar year to be able to stop and and to give focus for one day. But I pray that uh, you don't think about the resurrection just on Easter, but you think about it in a continual way, thinking about what God has done, that every morning that you wake up and you remind yourself of the gospel, that you remind yourself of the great grace that the Lord has shown us this morning and every day. Numbers 13, we've come to a critical point in our study of the book of Numbers. Numbers 13 is one of those turning points that every the rest of the book hinges upon. And I'll be honest with you, today is not necessarily the easiest sermon to preach. There's a, there's a warning here, and it's a critical warning that we need to hear about trusting God even when we're afraid, about trusting God even when it may be difficult, and about the consequences of not trusting Him, the consequences of not following. And so I'm going to ask if you would stand with us this morning. We're just going to read the first two verses of chapter 13 just to kind of set the tone for us this morning. Chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we are thankful for much. We are thankful for your grace. We are thankful for how you love us. Lord, we are thankful that you lead and guide and direct us in our path and in our life. We're thankful that you say that where we're gathered, that you are there also. And Lord, we trust in that this morning. Lord, we ask that you would remember that promise this morning. Lord, this is critical text for us. Lord, as we think about what it means to follow you, and as we think about the consequences of not. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts this morning. Lord, that your word would do a change in us. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Up until this point, we've been traveling with number with the people of Israel through the book of Numbers, and we find ourselves and we find the nation of Israel on the edge of blessing. We find them on the edge of blessing. And as we do that, we need to remember a few things. We need to remember the promise. We need to remember the promise. The promise was given to Abraham. And the promise was that God would make Abraham into a great nation and that he would find him a home, that he would, he would give him a promised land, so to speak, and this land would be good. But the promise did not happen in the life of Abraham, nor did it happen in the life of his son Isaac, 
nor of his grandson Jacob. In fact, it would be many generations before we see what we see here in the book of Numbers. And each generation would pass down that promise. God is going to make us a great nation. God is going to give us a home full of milk and honey, full of blessing. And now they stand there. And so we remember the promise. We also remember the journey. The Israelites had found themselves in slavery in Egypt. It was a bitter slavery. It was a hard slavery. They had experienced great difficulties. They had experienced Pharaoh decreeing that every male born to the tribe, the people of Israel, should be put to death. They had experienced God's salvation out of slavery. They had experienced the many mighty miracles as he told Egypt and showed Israel who he was through the plagues and then brings them out as they crossed the Red Sea on dry land, as God destroyed the armies of Egypt. They had seen all this. He had led them to Sinai, where he had formalized the relationship between him and this people. They had seen God deliver time and again on needs. They had seen him deliver on wants as they had gone on this trip. But not only that, the journey was also marked by negative aspects. As we look at the journey to this point, we see the people grumble. We see the people complain. Two weeks ago, we looked at just the short journey from Mount Sinai to this edge of blessing, to the edge of the promised land. And in approximately 10 days, we see three major complaints. We see a general grumbling. We see a grumbling about the situation. We see ultimately rebellion by Moses' own brother and sister towards his leadership. The people, yes, they had followed up to this point. They had not done so with the greatest of attitudes, maybe. And God had had repeatedly tried to remind them that to trust him, he had repeatedly showed them of his faithfulness, and yet they continued to complain. They continued to grumble. They continued to rebel. And so we need to remember not only the promise of where they stand, we need to remember the journey that got them to this point. It's on this edge of blessing, though, that we begin our story where we started in chapter 13. At the beginning of 13, God tells Moses to send send spies into the land. To send spies. This is a good thing. In Deuteronomy, by the way, just as a point of interest, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, you'll see the story change just slightly. In Deuteronomy, Moses records that the people had come and asked Moses to send spies in. And so as we begin to reconcile, to look at all the aspects of the story, we see most likely probably what happened was the people came to Moses and said, hey, let's send spies in to see what we're getting into. And Moses, as he does in other places throughout Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, takes that and goes to God and asks him, what should I do? And then we see the response here. God says, that's good. Send people in. Send 12 specifically into the promised land that they may see 
what you are getting into, what's going to happen, where you're going to need to go. And so the spies go in. Which brings us to the next part of our passage, the report, starting in verse 25. Sometime later, it says 40 days, sometime later the spies, they return, all 12 of them. And they stand before the people of Israel and they give a report. The first part of this report is amazing. The land is good. It says in verse 27, And they told him, When we came to the land to which you sent us, it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They're like, the promise is true. They weren't making it up. Our grandfathers who told us these stories, our fathers who told us these stories, the generations and generations before us who told us, God is going to make you a great nation and he's going to take you to a promised land. They weren't making it up. This place is awesome. Look at the fruit we've brought back. Look at the, think about the stories. It's all there. This land is fertile. We're going to be able to farm it. We're going to be able to live off of it. It's great. It's fantastic. But then we get to the second part of the report. The people there are scary. The people there are scary. Read on with me. It says in verse 28, the spies are continuing to give the report. They've just said how great this land is. And, but now they say, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. We saw giants. Skip down a little bit. And it says, so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone, out, gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. They're like, these people are huge. These people are huge. I remember... At University of Memphis, while I was studying there, it was a time when the University of Memphis was really good at basketball. And I remember one time I was walking through part of campus and the team was walking the other way. I don't know if they were going to practice or a bus or what, but all of them were gathering and they walked by me. And I have never felt small like that. Like, I've, I've never come up to a man's elbow before. It was weird. Like, I realized at that point that my dream of the NBA was gone. I mean, it was, it was pitiful. These guys, <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have realized that earlier. These guys, they go into this land and there are giants. These people are huge. Now, my guess is they're like most men that they exaggerated a little bit. But they were scared. It, they also tell us that the land devours its people. Now, to some extent, they were talking there about natural disaster. But to the other extent, what they really were referencing was that these people were at war with each other. That they were constantly fighting and that they were prepared for it. Remember, they say the cities are fortified. Okay, They don't, they don't live in tents like we do, folks. 
They don't live in just, you know, in the open. They have walls and gates, and they are ready for a fight, and they are huge. Did we mention that, that they're giants? They're huge, and they're warriors. The implication, by the way, is a reminder that Israel is not. Israel is made up of what? Slaves. They had never seen battle. They had never been trained formally. So now they're going up against fortified cities, giants, and warriors. And the people are scared. The people are scared. It says there at the beginning of verse 14, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept at night. They're terrified. In the midst of all this, we have Caleb's plea. Caleb pleads before the people, remember who is on our side. Remember who is on our side. The spies, they had done their job. They had taken into consideration how good the land was. They had taken into consideration how the land would be able to support them. They took into consideration the beauty of the land. But they had also taken into consideration the fortified cities. They had taken into consideration the warriors. They had taken into consideration the giants. What the spies did not take into consideration was who was on their side. They did not take into consideration that God was going with them. They did not take into consideration of what he had already done. They had forgotten the last two years-ish, year and a half. They had forgotten the plagues of Egypt. They had forgotten that they had been in the midst of the most powerful nation on the, in the world at that time, and yet they had walked out without a fight. They had forgotten that they were being chased by the most powerful army in the world at this time, and yet they crossed the sea on dry land and watched then as God crushed that army by his might and no other. They had forgotten the manna. They had forgotten the quail. They had forgotten his provision along the way. Caleb, please, remember who is on our side. Remember that we don't walk and face giants alone, but rather that we have the God who is mighty. How do the people respond? The people hear this plea. Not only their plea, but they hear the plea of Moses. They hear the plea of Aaron. They hear the plea of Joshua. That the Lord is with them, and yet the people rebel. They fear man over trust in God. They fear man over trust in God. They have been shown all of the miracles that we have talked about. They have journeyed with him. They have seen the cloud in front of them that dwelt with them. They had seen the pillar of fire by night. They had experienced all this. But yet they decide that men are more scary than this God. Not only that, but they had seen what disobedience had caused. They had seen that those who complained were devoured by fire. They had seen Miriam as she had rebelled against Moses they had seen the leprosy that had struck her and then the healing that had happened they had seen all of that and yet they had forgotten the God that they serve so they fear men 
They were afraid. They fear for their families. They have a fear for families. There in chapter 14, they're talking about the response of the people. Again, I read the verse, first verse to you already, but we'll read it again. It says, Then all of the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said, We should have died in the land of Egypt, or that we died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? They say, this is too dangerous. This is too dangerous for our families. They admit their own fear, but then they put forth their children. They say, we can't take them into this dangerous place. They're going to get killed. They're going to get taken captive. We can't put them in that situation. It's better for us to die in the wilderness. It's better for us to go back to slavery. Forgetting, like we talked about two weeks ago, forgetting what that was really like. What really happened there. One of the most heartbreaking things that that you hear when you talk to missionaries is from time to time you will come across a missionary who talks about the fact that their family does not support their decision because they're afraid. They say things like, why would you take my grandchildren to a place like that? Why would you take a little baby to a place like that? Why would you risk the lives of your family for that? It's a common response if you don't trust in Christ. It's a common, it's, it makes sense. Why would you take a child to a place like that? Why would you take a family to enter Chicago or enter Memphis? Why would you take a three-year-old to a place like Iraq or Afghanistan? It's because you realize, and it can only be because you realize of who goes with you. It can only be because you know that obedience to him is the safest thing you can do and because he is the one that destroys body and soul doesn't mean it's always going to be easy god was not calling them to just walk in they were going to have to fight some battles and in war sometimes lives get lost it was not going to be easy but it was going to be filled with blessing it was going to be filled with a reward greater than what you and i could ever comprehend but they fear for their families. And then we have the apex of rebellion. We have an a this leads to the apex of rebellion. Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb plead with the people, remember who has gotten you this far. Remember what he has done. Remember that there are consequences for disobeying. Let's go. Let's do this thing. You know what the people's response to that is? We need to stone these guys. These guys are lunatic. These four have lost their minds. Let's stone them. And then we'll pick another guy who will take us back to slavery in Egypt. The people flat out say no. Before, they've grumbled about general things, about, eh, I don't like walking across this desert. 
Before, they've grumbled about maybe specific things like, we don't have any meat to eat. This man is getting kind of old. You can only fry it, boil it so many times before it's just, eh. They want, we want meat. They've rebelled against the leadership before. They've, they've said, you know, Moses, we don't like you. We, we think other people have, should have a voice in what's going on here. But now we come to the point where they're rebelling flat out against the God who has brought them to the land of blessing. Now they're just going to flat out rebel against him. And they're going to refuse to go on. They refuse to enter into the land. They refuse to follow Moses any longer. They refuse to hear the reports of Caleb and Joshua. They say instead, let's stone these guys. Let's stone these leaders. It's a reminder, by the way, that we have a responsibility as individuals to follow the Lord. Because as a church, as a New Testament church, we make decisions as a family. But you can see here that sometimes the group isn't always in the best frame of mind. And so there's a plea here as a side note. There's a plea here for you to be following Christ. For you to remember what he has done for you. For you to be in tune with the Spirit so that when we come to these decisions, you don't desire to stone me. So that when we come to these decisions and the Lord puts something in front of us that maybe doesn't make sense, that we as a people understand and recognize when the Lord is leading. By the way, it doesn't mean that I'm always right. It doesn't mean that we're always that I'm always going to have the best plan. There's going to be times when you as a congregation might say, hey, you want to rethink that? You want to pray about that again? But you do it out of love, right? You do it out of humbleness, <laughs> okay? Thank you. Appreciate that, okay? You don't pick up rocks, <laughs> okay? Melissa would appreciate that. But, it, but we're ready for that. Israel wasn't ready. They had been rebelling for the last 10 days. They had never gotten right with the Lord. And so they come to this massive decision and they rebel. In this rebellion, we see God's response. We see God's response. I didn't put this first, but maybe I should have. We see God's response. God's response to this is, I'm going to wipe them all out. God is a just God. He is a holy God. And he says in verse 11 to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs I have done among them, I will strike them down with a pestilence and disinherit them. I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. God says, I'm done. And you know what? He's right. This people had rebelled and sinned and rebelled and sinned and he had shown grace and mercy, and as a holy, just God, he had every right to say this. We know that. We understand that. Yet Moses pleads for the people. Moses intercedes. Moses goes before God, and he begins to pray, God, don't destroy this people. Don't do this. You don't want to do this. And God relents. And there's probably here, well, not probably, there is a whole nother sermon here about God changing his mind. All right? couple points on that. One, God doesn't change his mind. Okay? Point two, our prayers are worth something. 
Our prayers are worth something. God didn't change his mind here, but he had placed Moses here for a purpose. He had placed Moses here for a purpose. He had placed Moses to be an intercessor. Just as he placed Christ before us, right? We have sinned. We have made mistakes. And the God who is the judge of all the universe rightly looks at you and me in our sin and says they are condemned. But who stands before us? Jesus Christ stands before us and he prays things like, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Did God change his mind when he chose to save me? Did he change his mind when he chose to save you? Not at all. But he placed Christ there as part of the plan to be an intercessor for you and for me. Not only that, but it's a reminder to us why God does it. We read this. I read this at times in my hard heart. I read this and I go, why didn't he destroy them? Why didn't he just take care of it? Because I am sometimes like my mother and I have no grace. And I have no mercy towards people that continue to do dumb things. My mom would stand right here and testify to that, by the way. She would have said amen. Okay? Why not? Because Mo- and so Moses' prayer is an explanation to you and to me why God does what he does. First, in this prayer, you're going to see Moses say, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought them up, this people, in the might from among them. He says, God, don't do this because, remember, your glory is tied to what you do to this people. Other people are going to hear about this. Don't do this for your own sake, for your name's sake. Then he says in verse 19, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt up till now. He says, don't do this because it's your glory, for your glory's sake, and don't do this because you are a God of steadfast love. You're a God of grace. God hears this, by the way. God hears this, and he responds. He gives grace to a people. He gives grace to a people. He says in verse 20 of of chapter 14, I have pardoned according to your word. Your, Your version may say, I have forgiven. He forgives iniquity. He forgives sin. He forgives this people. He says, I won't destroy them. I won't wipe them out. I will continue my covenant with them. I'll continue my promise with them. But he also says in the next breath, a judgment on a generation. He says, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. In other words, this will happen. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. He says, they won't see it. They won't see it. He announces judgment on this generation. He doesn't destroy the people. He has grace upon the people of Israel. But he gives judgment on the generation. Because though God forgives our sins, sometimes the consequence remains. Sometimes the consequence remains. You'll notice, by the way, a little later in the passage, that not only does he pronounce judgment on the people, that the generation won't enter the promised land, that they're going to wander the desert 
for 40 years plus, but so that all of them can die and another generation can rise. But you'll see that the spies, the ten guys, not Joshua and Caleb, they're going to get to see the promised land, but the ten spies, they die immediately. God, it says that there's a plague that's pronounced upon them. They were in a role of leadership. They were the ones that had tempted Israel and caused them to rebel. Reminds us of the passage of, or the words of Jesus where he says, it's better for you to tie a millstone around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. There's accountability for our leadership in our church. We need to be careful. So God gives judgment on a generation and then this is the interesting part. They feared for their children, but their children would be the ones that go. They feared for their children, but their children would be the ones that go. He says in verse 31, But your little ones who you said would become prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. They were afraid for their kids. But their kids were the ones that were going to get all the blessing. There's a little bit more to this. Not only were their kids the ones that would go, not only were the kids that would want, the ones that would enter in, but do you understand that in the disobedience of the parents that they had brought judgment upon their children in a way as well? They had wanted to protect their kids, remember? They had said, it's too dangerous for us to go in. It's too dangerous for to go there. And so God says, you're not going to go. You're going to wander. Who wandered with them? Their kids. So now, instead of their children getting to go in and live and grow up in the promised land, the children grow up in the desert. Yeah, it may have been dangerous, but with the Lord they would have been able to conquer and they would have gotten the pro their kids would have grown up in the promised land their kids would have grown up in blessing rather than in the desert not only that but if the parents had gone in who was going to do the fighting who was going to be on the front lines them now who's going to be on the front lines the children they didn't protect them at all when we disobey what God is calling us into, we don't protect anyone. They feared for their children, but their children would be the ones that go. Then we see, we see the nation of Israel respond to this judgment on the generation. We see, we see their, that old saying, two wrongs don't make a right. I don't know if your dad ever told you that, but he, mine did. Two wrongs don't make them right. The people confess. The people say, ah, we're sorry, we sinned, we want to go in now. I don't know about you, but this, was, this is like my childhood, like written in stone. Like my parents, I would do something dumb, and my parents would say, okay, fine, you're not, doing, you're not going camping would always be like the worst. Like, or you're not going fishing with dad. Like that was, that was like the worst punishment. Beat me all day long, but let me go fishing. And so they would announce that. They would pronounce this judgment upon me, usually my mother. They would pronounce this judgment upon me, and I would go, oh, no, I'm sorry, I'll do, I'll take out the trash, I'll clean my room, just please. Mom's like, yeah, you're still going to do all those things, but you're still not going fishing. The, the, the judgment remains. The people confess. The people say, we're sorry, we, won't do, we, we want to do this, we want to follow you. And God says, no, you don't get it. The consequence remains. 
consequence remains. But rather, rather than listen to that, they try, they try to make up for their disobedience by disobeying again. They say, they gather together, they get their arms together, their weapons together, and they say, okay, we're going to go, let's go. And Moses is like, don't do this, don't do this. And they go anyway, and they get the snot beat out of them. They are decimated. It, it is another disaster. Their disobedience leads to another disaster. Their disobedience led to a judgment. And they thought that further disobedience would somehow make up for that. Disobedience always leads to disaster. And you can't make it right. It's like what we talked about with Emily's arm. Emily breaks her arm. The appropriate response is not to go, well, I can take care of this. I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just not going to ride that go-kart anymore. That's not going to be enough, is it? It needs to be cared for. It needs to be taken care of. We need, she needed help in that moment. Further disobedience never solves initial disobedience. So what's our example here? We're going to have to go through these quickly. But what's our example here? 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Remember, Paul reminds us that these things were written down. These things were written down for our example. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So what's our example as we look here? First, we hear the call. Hearing the call is important. We need to hear from the Lord. We need to hear what He is leading us into. That means we have to be paying attention. It means we have to be paying attention. Maybe this morning you're sitting here and the Lord is speaking to your heart. There's something, that there's a weight on your chest that you can't figure out what's going on. And maybe this morning it's because you have never put your faith and trust in Him. He has opened the doors wide for you to walk into heaven, for you to walk into eternity and to know Him in a relationship. To have a life of satisfaction, to have a life of contentment. God has thrown those doors open to you this morning. And you're feeling that call. You're feeling him tug on your heart. You're feeling that weight. Respond. Respond. Admit that you've done wrong. We've all done it. That's not confessing anything scandalous. We've all made mistakes. Believe that Jesus is the only one that can forgive those and that he's the only way into the promised land. Israel could not have conquered the promised land any other way but then through God. We can enter into heaven no other way than through the blood and the resurrection of Christ. And then confess him to be boss. Say, hey, you saved my life, so now I'm going to follow you wherever you want me to go. Maybe this morning... You're already a believer and God has been calling you and he's been telling you to accomplish something. Maybe it's to walk across the street to share Christ with a friend. Maybe it's to, to go on a mission trip. Maybe it's to do something that, that doesn't make any sense. And you've been rejecting it and rejecting it. And this morning God is giving you another chance to say, I will follow. I will follow. 
We must hear the call. We must practice hearing the call. And we must be about resisting the temptation of fear. Our example is to resist the temptation of fear. There will always be fear present for us. There will always be that temptation. Sometimes it's fear for what others will think of us. Sometimes it's fear of what's next. Sometimes it's fear of the unknown. Sometimes it's fear for our children. We live in a culture, and I realize that I'm speaking as not a parent, but please understand, we live in a culture where we want our kids to have what's best. That's a good and a reasonable request and desire. We want them to experience all that life has to offer. We want them to have the best trinkets and the best things. We want them to experience things that we didn't get to. But let us not bow to that fear and that temptation at the expense of them knowing Christ. Let them see that this is what's important. That he's what's important. By not doing so, we are hurting them more than we are helping them. The people of Israel condemned their children to grow up in the desert. The people of Israel condemned their children to being on the front lines. Because they were afraid for their safety. Because they were afraid they wouldn't experience life. Brothers and sisters, let us understand that the greatest blessing that we can give our kids is to show them Christ and show him, show them his importance. Let us also understand this example that there are consequences to our disobedience. Let us understand that if we choose to disobey, there are consequences to those things. Sometimes that door gets closed. Sometimes God calls you in to doing incredible things that may seem to not make sense, that may seem scary at the moment, but he desires for you to get an opportunity to be with him and to experience those things. But there, will be, there comes a time at times in our lives when he says, okay, I'm done asking. I'll find somebody else. Christ has invited us as a church to reach Vandalia as a community, to, to be salt and light in this place. If we say no to that, his kingdom will not be thwarted. The gospel will not be thwarted. He will find someone else. He will find another church or he will find another people. Brothers and sisters, let us not lose our reward for disobedience because of fear. Let us go. Let us be the salt and light he's called us to be. Let us face the giants so that we may enter into the blessing and to the reward he has put before us. It's worth it. It's worth it. That's what Caleb and Joshua's message was. It's worth it. He's with us. The danger is worth it. We will be victorious. Let's go. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. And we're just going to have a time of response. Maybe this morning you understand that Christ has opened 
the door for you to come in and enter into a relationship with him, to know that your final destination is heaven, that it's there for all eternity, to know the joy and the the fulfillment of a life with him here in this moment, then we would say respond. Respond to that. Allow the spirit to put the words in your mouth. Just respond. Open your heart to that. Trust him. Maybe this morning you're a believer and you need to to confess and say, Lord, I haven't been following you. I haven't, uh, you've called me into the promised land, but I haven't gone. I haven't fought the way you've asked me to. I haven't done this or done that. I don't know what he's speaking to you. But maybe this morning you need to confess. Maybe this morning you need to pray on behalf of your church saying, Lord, help us to be a church that goes. Help us to be, maybe you need to be a Caleb and a Joshua who leads the way. This morning, though, you respond. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, this is, this is a sermon that is not light. Lord, we sit before your word this morning and we understand that you have placed a call on our lives. Some of us this morning, you are calling us into a saving relationship with you. Some of us this morning, you are calling us into the front lines. Some of us this morning, you are calling us across the street. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would move in our hearts, Lord, that we would not be afraid, but, Lord, that we would respond, that we would go. That we would go, that we would not have to face the discipline. Lord, that we would not have to face the consequences of our disobedience. Father, thank you for being a God who is gracious. Thank you for being a God who is loving. Father, thank you for being a God who protects his people from themselves at times even. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would be with us as a church. Use us in a mighty way. Lord, may it begin today. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.